Hi, I'm Anupam Gupta, Assistant Director of the Asia Society Policy Institute, and this is Asia Inside Out, where we take you beyond the latest policy headlines and provide an insider's view on Asian and global affairs. The film Crazy Rich Asians has gotten a lot of attention this year for its portrayal of the spoiled lives of the super-rich in Singapore. In today's episode, we'll turn to the lives of the wealthy in another part of Asia, India. This is the subject of a new book by James Crabtree called India's Billionaire Raj, which is billed as a journey through India's new Gilded Age. Crabtree served for five years as the Financial Times Mumbai bureau chief and is currently an associate professor at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy in Singapore. His excellent book charts how India's super-rich have grown in number over the past two decades, how they've changed the country's image in the minds of the world, and how they've altered the economic trajectory of their nation. Crabtree is especially interested in the dirty underbelly of this phenomenon. I sat down with him to learn how corruption and crony capitalism have crippled India's economy and what, if anything, can be done about it. We began by talking about why he wrote the book and what exactly, aside from the fancy parties, drew him to India super rich. So I lived in India for five years. I moved there in 2011 um, and I left in 2016. And rather than living in Delhi, which is where most foreigners who live uh, in India and write about it, they tend to end up in, in India where the political capital is. I lived in Mumbai and I wrote about finance. And so that meant I wrote about banking and telecoms and heavy industry and outsourcing. But what always captured my imagination was the role of the, the super rich. I don't think that's a very um, original insight because we're all fascinated by the lives of the super rich. But the Indian super rich and the businesses they run are just different from those that we find in the West. Uh, there was a period in our collective histories, let's say in the American Gilded Age, which is a parallel that I draw in the book, where in our countries you had uh, swashbuckling tycoons who... Uh, these buccaneering individuals who did extraordinary things. But we have now moved on to a rather more sort of organized and sedate form of capitalism. And so to arrive in India and discover that something like this was going on at a time of extraordinarily rapid growth and social change, I, I just found to be captivating. The book tells a story, it's called The Billionaire Raj, and so it's about this stage in India's development where it has gone from being a very poor country uh, before it began to liberalize in the early 1990s in a couple of decades to being still a relatively poor country, but one that has a very rich upper strata. Um, and so I suppose I wanted to tell that story, and I thought it was a story I was quite well-placed to tell because in Mumbai, these were the people I watched day in, day out, and I, I even got to know some of them. Many of the major figures of the American Gilded Age remade themselves as philanthropists. I asked Crabtree whether India's tycoons are driven by a similar sense of civic duty or nationalism. I think so. I think definitely the tycoons see themselves as nationalists. So the two questions, you said nationalists and philanthropists, they see themselves as nation builders. It might be that some of these figures looked at from outside, you might say they look like crony capitalists, or but they don't see themselves that way. And so one of the things that fascinated me about this class of hyper-wealthy uh, businessmen and industrialists was how do they see themselves? Because clearly India has gone through a period where there have been lots of corruption scandals and to some degree people have had negative thoughts about the tycoons. But the tycoons don't view themselves that way. And so as I talk to them, you're right, they see themselves as nation builders, uh, people who are able to build projects in difficult circumstances. They know India is a horribly difficult place to operate, but they think they can do things that other people 
uh, can't do um, and they're doing it you know partially they obviously want to make money but they see themselves as doing it in the service of the nation as in America in the 1860s or the 1870s India needs to have steel mills and railways and ports and the people who build these see themselves as doing something for the civic good a philanthropy is a slightly different question so India does have a rich tradition of what we might call corporate philanthropy companies like Tata and Birla um, the older generation of conglomerates have a, a long heritage, a rather glorious heritage of civic action. I didn't see quite as much evidence of this amongst the newer generation of tycoons. They almost all have CSR programs, but those CSR programs, if I were to be critical of them, don't tend to be world-leading. They're not very innovative. Often they're headed by the wife of the tycoon. They provide jobs to the family, um, and they are a form of managing opposition to industrial projects often. So with there are some exceptions. So there, there are people like Azim Premji, the, the, the software tycoon, does a lot of good work. There, there are good and, and bad Indian philanthropists, but I didn't find that um, all of them were of universally high quality. Crabtree doesn't demonize any of the billionaires in his book. He does, however, make a distinction between good billionaires who have started legitimately innovative and competitive businesses and bad billionaires. For Crabtree, the distinction isn't a moral one, but a practical one about India's overall development. I asked him to explain the difference and describe the swift rise of India's billionaire class. So take a step back. In the middle of the 1990s, not long after India had begun to liberalize and reopen its economy after 40 or so years of being closed off from the world, uh, this was a country that did not have a very wealthy upper strata by, by global standards. Um, in the 1995-96, India had two billionaires. Um, they were barely billionaires. They had about $3 billion um, between the two of them. Now it has. they have 119, 120 uh, which is more than any country apart from China and the US. Collectively, they're worth $450 billion. Um, and uh, you know that number is likely to go up and up. That The creation of wealth at the top of Indian society um, for its stage of development, still a relatively poor country, has happened faster than China, for sure. Um, you know, maybe not quite as fast as Russia after 1989, but you know, comparably quickly to almost any country in history. As you say, there's this division, however, that some of the billionaires are, you know, the software IT billionaires, the people making generic pharmaceuticals, some in finance, um, who basically have set up very good businesses, and in particular, the ones that have tapped global markets um, have done very well, uh, because they're not only relying on uh, the size of the Indian economy, they can sell anywhere in the world. And if you set up a globally competitive business from an emerging market, you get you can get very, very rich. And and I don't have a particular problem with that. I mean, I think that's a very good thing for India. In fact, India could probably do with more of those sorts of people rather than less, as long as they end up paying taxes and supporting the social good. The problem comes, uh, which happened a lot in the preceding decade to this one, where you have a well-connected uh, a businessman, particularly in the heavy industrial sectors, so again, the people building steel mills or trying to build toll roads or ports, uh, power generation, th that sort of thing, um, who, although they might be reasonably good business people, a lot of their competitive advantage came from the fact that either they were very good at manipulating regulation to their advantage, either just because they were crafty or because they were outright corrupt, or they were very good at getting financing from public sector banks in a way that perhaps they uh, did um, you know, more so than a, a neutral analysis would have suggested they could have done. And so that, that's the problem. India wants more of the former type and, and less of the latter. The billionaire Raj outlines how corruption has been enmeshed in India since independence. 
I asked Crabtree if he thinks it will be a part of India's future as well. So I'd like let's take a further step back from that, which is to say that India is not particularly unusual in this. I, I think there is this image out there that India is somehow uniquely corrupt. Um, it is unusually corrupt compared to its current peers, but so was America in the 1880s, so was South Korea in the 1960s, so was Britain in the 1820s. I mean, many countries have gone through these periods of rap- rapid early industrialization in which you have um, you know, urbanization, the, the creation of a kind of mass urban politics, um, and they often go along with uh, a really kind of grimy sort of politics, particularly when you're also doing big infrastructure development. Um, and so the the thing that happened in India was that, uh, you know, in a generation ago before 1991, India was very corrupt, but it was all quite small ticket stuff. You know, you had to pay a small bribe to get a telephone. You had to pay a small bribe to, you know, if a police officer stopped you. What began to happen in the 1990s, and particularly from the middle of the 2000s, as India re-globalized and its economy became much more valuable, was that what used to be this small, irritating retail uh, corruption suddenly went wholesale and bang, uh, you had mega scandals worth tens of billions of dollars. Um, one academic estimate suggests that all in all there was you know, more than $100 billion worth of, of money that was basically sort of rent extraction. Uh, I think India is going to have some form of corruption in, in its future for quite a while because that just tends to be what happens with um, early stage middle income countries. The, the ideal level of corruption in your society does not tend to be zero. Corruption can be quite helpful in terms of greasing the wheels of industrial development, of building co- political coalitions. But you want to either try and allow corruption strategically to help you develop economically, which is what happened in East Asia, or you want to keep it to an absolute minimum, uh, because otherwise the risk is that uh, it, it diverts resources from where it should otherwise go. So I think the idea that India is going to get rid of corruption entirely um, is unlikely. But I do think that Prime Minister Narendra Modi, who's been trying to wage a war against corruption, could probably do even more than he's doing at the moment. In the book... Crabtree suggests that not all corruption is necessarily detrimental. He discusses a grand but orderly kind of corruption that can further social progress. I asked him to elaborate and give a few examples of what this actually looks like on the ground. Well, so we're on the Asia Society podcast here, so we can roam a little more broadly just than India. Let's say you are Malaysia in the 1980s or Korea 10 years before. Uh, One of the things the government allowed was it would there was a sort of deal between the industrial titans in those countries um, and the government, which is that if they built the sort of businesses the government wanted them to build, namely competitive export manufacturers, the sort of thing that they knew that they wanted to develop, then they could, you know, keep a little bit for themselves. And so there was a sort of permissible kind of corruption. The, the technical term is rent-seeking. And so rent-seeking, the provision of rents was allowed, basically, as long as you did the right thing. The problem that India has had is it hasn't used corruption strategically, uh, typically. Um, It certainly hasn't been very good at building export-focused manufacturing. Um, And now it's probably reached a stage where it can't even do this, even if it wanted to, because the salience of corruption is now so high after the corruption scandals that even if the government decided that it wanted to do this this sort of East Asian thing of allowing a little bit of corruption to grease the wheels, probably you're now in a situation where that would be quite difficult because of the press and the judiciary. But even within India, you see different attitudes to this. So I, in the book, there's a chapter where I talk about politics in the south. And so southern India, 
as your listeners will probably know, is you know better developed, more educated, much more like a kind of Asian middle income country. It's North India that is more like the the image of India of old, which is you know poor. Um, people living in mud huts, um, that sort of thing. Um, and, and southern India has a more efficient style of crony capitalism. If you look in, in Andhra Pradesh or Jailalita, the former chief minister of Tamil Nadu, you know, these were pretty, these, these were people who used power, better be careful what I say, but they, they were people who, uh, you know, knew how to use power. Um, uh, and they're not people who necessarily have the cleanest governance records, but they were able to use that to build good infrastructure. Um, the infrastructure in southern India is generally pretty good, so that, that could be anything from roads to urban rail. It could be um, irrigation was one of the biggest ones. So the, in Andhra Pradesh, in particular, huge um, irrigation systems that were put in um, you know, billions and billions of dollars. This was not done cleanly, but it was done strategically. And they do the same with social services as well. Both the southern states tend to have much more uh, uplifting southern um, social welfare. So things like free school meals for children, uh, you know, these services are not administered uh, like the Singaporeans would. Uh, you know, there's plenty of what is euphemistically called wastage. Nonetheless, they contribute to much better social outcomes. And so both on the social side and also on the infrastructural development side, uh, corruption is not always a bad thing. I mean, it can be because it means that resources are wasted. But as long as these these rents are distributed in a strategic way, um, then uh, they can be helpful for economic development and they can also be helpful for political cohesion. People don't like to talk about this very much because if you're a, a sort of reformer, you want to suggest that kind of clean governance is the way to go. But actually, you know, since thinkers like Samuel Huntingdon in the 60s and 70s, we've known that corruption is quite useful for knitting together political coalitions. If you want to get a disparate group of people together, it's quite helpful to let them have a little bit of the money. Um, and that's certainly been true of India. If you look at the way that different caste groups or different political um, communities come together to try and form governments, then cor corruption can be quite helpful in that process as well. If corruption can be good or bad, why should the world care about what's happening in India? The fact is, as the world's fastest growing major economy, many are hoping India can be a long-term engine for global growth. Crabtree's book analyzes not only how corruption and crony capitalism have shaped the Indian economy so far, but also how they threaten India's future growth. The rise of the super-rich and the proliferation of crony capitalism have resulted in a boom and bust cycle that, according to Crabtree, can be very problematic for India's long-term economic future. What happened in India? So these are the the, I, the book is called the Billionaire Raj, and I suggest these are three the three sort of fault lines of the Billionaire Raj. The first, as you said, the rise of the super rich and the inequality that came with it. The second, crony capitalism, and then the third, and they're all related, uh, being the fact that uh, India tends to go through these boom and bust cycles. So it, what it aspires to do is what China did, which is to grow very quickly, very for a very long time. China managed to grow at you know close to double digits or above that for twenty years. Um, but almost no country in history has ever actually managed that apart from China. It's very unusual. And what happened in India in the middle of the 2000s, you had this process uh, that I talked about before, re-globalization growth uh, came very quickly. India began to grow at almost Chinese rates, but it only managed it for about five years. And then the wheels totally fell off. Um, and why did that happen? It's because the industrial tycoons, who are the backbone of the Indian industrial economy and the conglomerates that they run, borrowed a huge amount of money from state bank banks. The state bank banks could 
raise financing themselves very easily because this was a moment in which um, you know capital was cheap in the world. Um, and so they set about uh, spending a lot of money on big infrastructure projects, building steel mills and iron ore mines and ports and railways. Um, and then all of the corruption scandals happened and suddenly they uh, discovered that all of their projects were running into trouble uh, because previously they were able to make these things work, get the government permissions that they needed and so on, you know, using their wit and wiles and perhaps their, their wallets. Um, and now they couldn't anymore. And so you had this remarkable transformation that happened in India in only really 10 years that happened in the, in the middle of the 2000s. In the old world, capital was expensive and politics was easy, by which I mean uh, that if you were in the mid-90s or particularly before that, it was very difficult to raise money in India. Capital was very expensive, but you could work the political system. And, and what happened was that flipped on its head. So suddenly you got to a situation in which capital was cheap, but politics was difficult. Um, and so they had borrowed a whole bunch of money and suddenly the political system ground to a halt. And a lot of these projects went bust. Um, the conglomerates also effectively went bust, although in India, companies don't tend to go bust because it doesn't work like that. Um, but what you have now is this, they call it the twin balance sheet problem. Uh, one balance sheet being the balance sheets of the conglomerates themselves, which have got tons and tons of uh, debt, massively over leveraged. And then you have the balance sheets of the public sector banks, which form the heart of the Indian banking system. Um, and they are teetering under, you know, nobody really knows still, but 150 billion or more bad loans, probably 18% of loans in the banking system are non-performing, which is a huge figure, much larger than almost any other country in Asia. And it's been very difficult to work India's way out of this problem. Um, after the, when Modi arrived, we knew this was a problem. There was a bit of sort of hiding hiding eyes behind hands and people didn't really want to look at it. But gradually we've come to a sense of what the problem is. But we, it's very hard to fix because it requires a political solution in which you've got to bail out the tycoons. No one wants to do that because it looks like corruption. Got to bail out the banks. No one wants to do that. So people keep kicking the can down the road. And you think, well, why does that matter? It matters because... Although India's economy has done relatively well over the last few years, it's done that because Indian consumers have bought a lot of goods and the Indian government's been spending a lot of money, but the private sector has effectively been on strike. So the tycoons who were so bold in the mid-2000s um, have sort of stopped spending because they're bust, or a lot of them are bust. And until India fixes this problem, uh, its economy is never going to grow as quickly um, as it should, and it's also going to have a problem building the kind of infrastructure that only these types of companies can provide. The stakes for India's economic future are clearly very high. The Narendra Modi government has taken certain steps, including passing a new bankruptcy law. But is the state taking the problem seriously enough? Here's Crabtree. Not anywhere near enough has been done. Um, the government will say that they have had reasonable successes. So you have the twin balance sheet problem, corporates and banks. The corporate side is getting better. As you say, they passed a bankruptcy law and they have a new process where if you are um, basically bankrupt, if you were in America, you'd be bankrupt. Um, you are a power company or a steel company. Um, you have some good assets. You built some steel mills, but you can't run them because you don't have any money or your business model was wrong. The deal you made with the government was wrong. Um, they're beginning to work their way through those. The banking system is much more problematic, so they haven't really found a way of dealing with this. 
there are ways you can do it. You can set up what's called a bad bank in which you take all of the assets off the books of um, the banks, or you can take these public sector banks and you can privatize them. India doesn't want to do either of those things. And so at the moment, as far as I can tell, they're just, and they're about to go into an election. So nothing's going to happen in an election because it's politically controversial. So basically, I'm quite pessimistic about what's going to happen to the Indian banking system. I think they're making reasonable progress on the corporate side. Um, but the banking system is in, still in a big, big mess. And that's a huge problem. I mean, in the end, the banking system is the, is the lifeblood of your economy. If you're not creating credit, you're not providing loans to entrepreneurs, um, that's a really big problem. Uh, and so I think um, Modi deserves some credit. But this problem is far from solved. And the risk is that, you know, there's going to be middle of 2019 before you have a new government, then they have a think about it. It could be years before this happens. And the risk is that India has a lost decade of industrial investment just at the moment where it really needs to be updating its capital infrastructure. India is headed to elections next year to select its next government. And part of the challenge, according to Crabtree, is the amount of money in Indian politics. The book argues that election costs are perhaps the most important source of corruption in India today. The last national elections in 2014 reportedly cost a staggering $5 billion. Estimates from experts suggest that next year's elections are going to cost far more than that. I asked Crabtree if this problem is destined to get worse or if there's a way out. It's a great question. There's only really two ways that you can fix this. Um, one of which is to go the American route, which is to have a very, very expensive democracy, but one that is open and transparent. And I think that's the route that India basically has to go down. Uh, the other option is to have a more cheap and cheerful democracy, potentially one in which you have state funding of political parties like in Europe. Um, it may be that India can have some hybrid of those two. But, but as you say, the Indian political system has grown to a point where it is used to having lots of money. This is a relatively recent phenomenon. As I say, all of these things are bound up in India's re-globalization and the creation of what I in the book call the billionaire Raj, this new uh, sort of social and economic setup that emerged after liberalization, but really in the middle of the 2000s. I mean, that was when India began to really change at great pace. And just as India's re-globalization meant faster growth and more corruption, it also meant much more expensive elections. And that was partly because winning elections was suddenly much more valuable on the, the demand side, as it were. Um, maintaining power, if you wanted to extract things from power, was worth a lot more. So it was worth you spending more. But also the supply side, where you could get money from, suddenly there were a lot more rich people out there. You mentioned that five billion figure. No one really knows what the figure is, but that's a reasonable estimate. And where is that money coming from? I mean, it's all coming from the big tycoons. They're the only people who have that sort of money. It's not coming from like Bernie Sanders, like from small dollar donations with people giving a hundred rupees or two hundred rupees. This is coming in big checks uh, or big suitcases full of money from very very rich people. And fixing that, I think, is going to be very difficult, particularly because no one has any incentive to do that. Um, you know, the party in government is the beneficiary of that system. So Modi, for all of his ostensible lacking in corruption, has done nothing at all to try and fix this problem, which is really the original sin of Indian democracy, um, that you have this vastly expensive political system, which is funded under the table in ways that are unaccountable. And so that may not be quite as bad as it looks. It may be that some of these tycoons give money in a sort of reasonably civic way and that they don't have a, an absolute quid pro quo, but we don't know that. 
Um, so as citizens, when I'm not a citizen of India, but if I was a citizen of India, I would want to know. I want to know who's giving money to whom. So at least I can tell if there's some supposition of impropriety. So I think the, the, the likely path or the best path for India is basically to follow the American model. And the American model is far from ideal. And most reasonable people could agree there's far too much money in American politics. But at least you basically know where it, who's giving to whom. Um, and so you have some sense of accountability and transparency. And so that, that I think, is basically where India has to try and get to. It's clear that the challenges ahead for India are vast. Its leaders are focused on economic growth, but they must grow in ways that alleviate poverty, yet do not undermine India's democracy or its long-term economic trajectory. Given the number of obstacles he lays out in the book, I asked Crabtree if he thinks India is up to the challenge. I also asked him what he's learned about India since he's left. Has the distance he has gained, now that he lives in Singapore, helped him see India in a new light? I say in the book that I'm optimistic about India's future. What I mean by that is I'm theoretically optimistic that that we know what countries have to do to develop, basically. This is a very, very difficult thing, but, but it's no longer a complete black box. And I think having moved to Singapore... A, I got a bit of distance from the day-to-day in India, and what I was trying to do was to write a book where I remembered what really mattered and try and... India's a very noisy country. There's a lot going on all of the time. It's very easy to get lost in the details, and I suppose I think it was helpful to leave and come back from time to time. It gave me some perspectives. But in particular, moving to East Asia reminds you of what the big, big picture here. And the big picture is poor countries becoming middle-income countries trying to become rich countries. That's what all of this is about. That's what Singapore, Taiwan, Japan, South Korea have managed to do. It's what Thailand and Malaysia have almost managed to do uh, and China is about to do. Um, And it's what India and Indonesia and the other countries are are, are trying to do. And, And the lesson from East Asia... Uh, there are particular ways that East Asia managed to do this. Um, they were very strong on export-focused manufacturing. That's the famous thing about the Asian miracle. But nonetheless, there were other things too. They built states that worked pretty well. They were fairly egalitarian. I mean, you know, there were plenty of very, very rich people in Thailand and Malaysia. But the rich people, to put it very bluntly, the rich people paid their taxes, and the poor people uh, got, you know, reasonably well-paying factory jobs and education, healthcare. And that was there was a sort of social compact that economists sometimes call an inclusive model of growth, which is a bit of a mealy mouth phrase, but it basically means that all the money wasn't just going to the very rich. And I think being in Singapore and thinking about the success and the the, you know, the, the great successes of East Asia and some that haven't quite worked as well, that gave me a useful perspective on what India has to do. Now, there's an open question. Is India going to be able to do that? There are many barriers. It's going to be difficult. It's not clear that India can follow that model exactly. There are lots of, let's just take the example of export-focused manufacturing. There are lots of economic changes going on in the world, you know, robotics and AI and globalization and da-da-da-da-da-da. So it might be that India is going to have to follow a path that is unusual. Nonetheless, we we sort of know... um, the sort, the sort of things that you should be doing, and the same was true in America in the 1880s. Um, you know, this was a country that was very, very corrupt, that had um, an incredibly wealthy upper strata that appeared to be quite selfish and rapacious. Um, and then, in 10, 20, 30 years, um, you had a reassertion of political control by the middle class. You had better governance standards. You had campaigns against corruption. 
Uh, you had the emergence of a sort of more mature political system. You, you know, had a, a whole range of new kinds of institutions from, I don't know, the public library system. All sorts of things happened in this this early stage. And so by 1910, 1920, America was a very different country about which one could be much more positive. And so I don't think there's any reason why this can't happen in India. That's why I'm optimistic about India's future. I don't think there's any structural reason why India can't be successful. And if you look at the record of Indians around the world, the Indian diasporas are enormously successful. I mean, Hinduism is America's richest religion. Almost everywhere Indians go, they make an enormous success of things. And so there's huge human capital talent there waiting to be tapped. But you have to have the right public policy solutions. And in the end, I'm a policy nerd. I work at a policy school. I worked at a kind of nerdy newspaper. And so in the end, this is sort of within India's control. If you have wise public policy, it can do what China and Malaysia and um, you know, Thailand have done before. This is not, uh, it's not kind of rocket science, but it requires good public policy and that is India's challenge. Finding our way toward good policy is our shared challenge, and good policy requires credible information and astute analysis. I hope our conversation today has shed some light on how India's super-rich are shaping the future of the country and to what extent corruption remains a major challenge in contemporary Indian society. My thanks to James Crabtree for his time and for sharing his perspectives. For more on this topic and for some very colorful stories about crazy rich Indians, pick up his excellent book, The Billionaire Raj, A Journey Through India's New Gilded Age. This has been Anubhav Gupta for Asia Inside Out. Till next time, happy reading.